Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Timboon, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission from Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 43. With daily doses of liver extract and vitamins, my body began to strengthen. By the end of June, I was almost as strong and healthy as the day I arrived at the prison. Near the end of July, however, the cell door opened, and a guard told us to prepare to leave. We rolled up our sleeping mats, took a seat on the floor, expecting to leave immediately. As the morning hours passed, we talked among ourselves, speculating about where we might be going. Noon came and went with a still in the cell, and as the afternoon wore on, Nell and Helen became irritable. To get their minds on something else, I challenged them to a round of our scripture memory game. In mid-afternoon, the guards opened the cell door again and ordered us out to the corridor. We grabbed our coats, stepped through the doorway to find long rows of our fellow prisoners already formed and waiting. One of the guards directed us to our place in line, and soon we shuffled along with the others towards the corner by the shower door and the hall that led to the courtyard, then passed it to another door that led outside. For Christina, Helen, and Nell, it was their first time outdoors since arriving at the prison. We came from the building to a paved area just off a drive in the service section of the prison. Buses were parked there, and we were directed towards them. Prisoners ahead of us stepped aboard. As one bus was loaded, it pulled away, and another took its place. I glanced around for Corey, but didn't see her. When it was my turn, I dutifully stepped aboard the next bus and took a seat. Nell sat beside me, but in spite of her company... Loneliness swept over me as I thought of what might lie ahead for us and whether anyone would ever find me again. I was lost in thought when the bus lurched forward and we began to move. As we left the prison yard, I folded the coat in my lap and ran my hand over the pocket to make sure the bottles were still inside. That's when I noticed the prison guards were gone and in their place were German soldiers. Any pretense of who'd been in charge before was now gone for good. Thirty minutes later, we arrived at a railroad freight yard. Rail cars lined the tracks, and in the distance I saw smoke and steam rising from the locomotives. The bus came to a stop near the tracks, and we were ordered out. Coat in hand, I followed the others from the bus. Nell was with me, and I did my best to stay with her. Outside, the bus-armed soldiers were formed in rows that lined our path. They urged us along. If someone didn't move fast enough, they nudged them with the butt of their rifles. As I stumbled towards the rail cars, someone grabbed my right hand. When I looked, I saw Corey standing beside me. My heart leaped with excitement. I wanted to hug her and kiss her cheeks, but we dared not stop just then for fear of the soldiers. As we drew closer to the rail cars, chaos swirled around us with the soldiers shouting and pushing us forward. Others were yelling and hitting prisoners who resisted their orders and didn't move quickly enough. Many were knocked to the ground, and the soldiers descended upon them, kicking them, striking them with their rifles, all the while yelling, Get up! Get up! Ahead of us was a loading ramp of a kind that seemed suited for cattle. As people reached the incline, their forward progress slowed. With everyone pushing and shoving, I worried I'd lose my contact with Corey. She must have been worried, too, because she squeezed my hand so tightly it hurt. The soldiers continued to scream at us in an attempt to keep us moving, never once noticing the jam that held us back.
This went on for what seemed like a long time until finally a group of soldiers gathered behind us and began pushing the crowd forward. Some caught unaware stumbled and fell to the ground, but still the soldiers kept driving forward, forcing us to trample the fallen beneath our feet. When we reached the ramp, the size of the crowd narrowed to two or four people wide. Soldiers stood near the rail car doors, watching as prisoners stepped aboard. From the bottom of the ramp, it seemed as though they were counting, but as I came nearer, I saw that they were merely making certain we were packed as tightly as possible. Just then, one of the soldiers reached over from the side and snatched the coat from my hands. How stupid of you to carry a coat in summer, he shouted. I tried to hold on to it, and he slapped me across the face. Another came to his side and shoved me up the ramp. Corey turned to defend me, but I grabbed her arm. Come on, I shouted. Let them have it. But the... Never mind, I retorted and dragged her with me towards the rail car. Having found her, I didn't want to be without her again. Clinging to each other, we trudged into the rail car. And as we passed through the doorway, I glanced over my shoulder. The trampled bodies of our fellow prisoners littered the path between the buses and the tracks. All of them were bleeding, and only a few showed signs of life. Near the end of the ramp, I saw my coat lying with them. One of the vials protruded from an open pocket. My heart sank at the thought of leaving it behind, but there was no way to retrieve it then. If I'd stepped from the car to get it, a soldier would have shot me on the spot. Seconds later, two soldiers appeared and slid the door to our car closed. I heard them latch it in place, and any hope of ever seeing the coat again was gone. The rail car in which we stood was suitable for hauling cattle, and from the smell of the manure that it filled it, I was certain that it was a cargo at last held. Cattle were allowed enough space to stand without touching each other, and enough circulation to keep them from overheating. We were squeezed shoulder to shoulder, and the air quickly became hot. Some among us fainted, but never fell, as though there was no space between us for them to slide to the floor. There was also no sanitary facilities, and soon the odor of manure was overcome by the stench of our own urine and feces. After a while, someone near the wall to the left broke loose a wall plank to let in more air. Then someone on the right side did the same, and we at least had a meager cross-ventilation. In a little while, the car jerked forward, and we began to roll along the tracks. For no apparent reason other than my own internal sense of direction, it seemed as though we were moving south. I twisted my head to one side to glance out through the opening of the wallboard on our side of the car, and saw we were passing a town. You track, I think. Then you were right, Corey commented. We're traveling south. Just after sunset, the train came to a stop. Outside the rail car, soldiers were shouting, and the sound of their voices grew louder and louder as they made their way down the line of cars towards us. Then the door of our car slid open, and a soldier leaned in. His face snarled with anger, and he shouted, Out! Out! You must get out of the car! There was no ramp to step down on, and the floor of the car was almost two meters above the ground. Women near the door hesitated to jump, and when they didn't move as the soldiers commanded, he reached into the car and dragged the nearest out by force. Seeing that, the rest of us surged forward and forced those ahead of us to jump. Then we did the same. By then it was fully night. We stumbled in the dark over the uneven ground and the bodies of fallen prisoners 
as the soldiers herded us like cattle from the tracks to the narrow dirt road. Someone said we were near the town of Volt, which was in the southern portion of the country. Based on the glimpses of countryside I saw from the rail car, I felt I was correct, and what I learned later proved it was right. Down the road we came to a prison camp that reminded us of the refugee camp near Westenborg, where I'd gone with William but seemed to be like a hundred lifetimes ago. Like Westenborg, this camp had a wire fence almost four meters high with strands of barbed wire at the top and guard towers at the corners and squads of soldiers on foot patrol the perimeter. Beyond the main gate was an area filled with large canvas tents that lay between the outer fence and an inner one that separated us from the wooden barracks of the permanent camp. The tents were made of heavy material, but they had no sides. There were no cots or mats for sleeping either, only straw that had been scattered on the ground. We were hungry, dirty, exhausted, and as we arrived beneath the tents, we flopped to rest. Others ventured out in search of a toilet, and finding none, they used a grassy area beyond the tents. I thought they would feed us, as we'd only had one meal that day. But as time went by, I realized we were expected to endure the night without so much as a slice of bread. With nothing else to do, I stretched out on the bare ground beside Corey and went to sleep. A few hours later, I was awakened by the sound of thunder. Then it began to rain. Before long, it was coming in torrents. Water washed over the ground that we'd used as a latrine. Thesis floated past where we slept, and even those near the center of the tent were soaked. Some cried, their anguished sobs rising above the patter of the raindrops. Others cursed the downpour and the soldiers who put us there. I was used to sleeping on a hard service, but the rain made me cold, and I slept in fitful episodes. Somewhere in the night, the dream returned, and in it I soared above a large house surrounded by gardens with flower beds filled with tulips, men and women tending the gardens, and Corey was with them. Only now, in addition to Captain Borman, I saw the faces of several guards we had known at the prison, and a soldier we had seen when he loaded us into the rail car. At sunup, I awakened chill to the bone and with a nagging cough. Corey was worried about my health and wanted to take me to the camp hospital. I didn't think they had one. Besides, I was much more interested in telling her about the dream. We have to figure out what it means, I insisted. It doesn't matter what it means if you aren't alive to live it. Corey continued to nag me about seeking help, and I finally gave in and agreed. But when we approached the soldiers, they just laughed and said, There's no medical support for prisoners. We limped back to the tent where we had been sitting only to find that others had taken our place and now we were relegated to a spot on the outer edge. Most of us thought we'd be moved into the main part of the camp right away, but the first day turned into a second, and then we remained on the ground under the tents in the space between the fence and the barracks, exposed to the weather that alternated between heavy rains and suffocating heat. Perhaps it was the extreme conditions that I'd been weakened before and now fully recovered, but in a matter of days I felt the effects of not having the medicine. I was able to function, but fatigue was an issue, and I spent most of the time dozing on the ground. Nell was nowhere to be found, but Christina and Helen occupied a place not far from us. I watched as they cared for each other in much the same way Corey and I did. Christina was well and healthy, but in a strange twist, Helen was now ill and lay with her head in Christina's lap. 
As the rains continued, coughing became the sound we heard most each day. Nights were restless, and each morning we awoke to find that someone else had died. After Corey and I spent the first two days arguing over the weather to take me to seek medical help, we spent the next two dealing with soldiers' response. On the fifth day, I remembered the Bible hanging from the corridor beneath my dress. We received a bowl of porridge that morning after we'd eaten. Corey read from the scriptures. Afterwards, we prayed quietly together, asking God to heal those who were sick, provide food for us to eat, and a dry place to sleep. Not long after that, the rain ceased, but food continued to be scarce, and what they gave us had little nutritional value. Hunger pangs in my stomach continued to send a dull ache through my body. I was sure my body was consuming its own tissue for energy. Some around us complained, but instead of joining them, Corey suggested we talk about my reoccurring dream. I've been thinking about it, she said, and I think this is going to be our work, helping those injured by the war. Yes, this war has inflicted many casualties on our people. Netherlanders haven't really been in the fighting much, but they've been wounded just the same. Sometimes it's the emotional and spiritual wounds that can be the most troublesome. And when this war is over, there'll be plenty of our fellow countrymen who'll need a hand recovering. I don't think it will last forever, do you? I think Papa was right. The Germans have raised their hand against the Jews, and God will not allow it to continue. This will come to an end, and the Germans will be left with nothing. But I don't think it's our countrymen so much as the center of that dream. Why not? Think of the people I see, Captain Borman and the lieutenant who came with him when they arrested us. Now some of the guards from the prison and the soldiers at the train. What about them? They aren't Dutch. They're German. I think this is to be our task, I continued before she could say more, helping the guards and the soldiers from either side. She shot a look in my direction and I could see the fire in her eyes. Helping the Germans? Yes, I nodded, helping them find their way to redemption. Corey was interested in helping the Jews and our fellow Netherlanders, but she was not excited at all about the prospect of helping those who had fought against us, particularly not the German soldiers. I would like to help them find their way to eternity right now, she grumbled. Shh, I said, harboring anger against them will only lead to bitterness. Well, that's the end of chapter 43, and next week we'll go on to chapter 44 and find out more about the uh, concentration camp there in Holland called Volt. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.